0: Or on the Ear Verm Network.
1: Frederick the Great. Surprise and Prevention. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I'm Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And tonight, we're going to be talking to you about surprise and prevention. But before that, you might be hearing that uh, Thumbs and I might sound a little bit different this evening. A little canned in comparison. Yeah, and in in subsequent podcast for a little bit because as you all are probably aware numbers of infections are going back up and so thumbs and i are back to podcasting from our separate spaces so it's nice that we're still able to do this but in case you were able to uh, you're sitting there going they sound a little different than than two weeks ago uh this this would be why so yep we're just uh we're in it for the long haul like
0: y'all are i gotta say not having to drive home afterwards is really nice but i'd miss the like it's so much easier to pick up on social cues when i'm looking at you from like three feet away.
1: And when there's not like that, that very short delay. Yeah. You know, because even if, even if you got a really good connection, there's still that like millisecond or second delay between things that can just make it like, did he hear me? Should I keep talking? (laughs) Oh, no, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, again, we, we understand it's a frustration. It's a frustration for us, but of course this is the world we're living in. So let's get through it together. And speaking of the world we're living in this international (laughs) world, we've got a French listener. I was looking at the... The statistics are, are, uh, um, oh crap, what are they called? Um, Metrics. Metrics, I think, is the industry Mm -hmm. term. And uh, I noticed that we had a a listener in France who had recently downloaded all of our episodes. So uh, I'm going to screw this up, but merci
0: beaucoup and uh, and, and welcome to you. My gift to you is that I will never try and speak French. I took two years of it. I loved it. I actually really like French as a language, but I am told that I have the worst accent ever. (laughs)
1: and my gift to you is that i will mispronounce french constantly so that you can make fun of me that's my gift
0: you're like it's okay you've got a french name so you get to do that
1: i guess yeah that's my pass i I may speak french (laughs) badly but my my last name is french so that's the
0: uh you're messing up your culture i'd be messing up someone else's
1: (laughs) fair enough fair enough Well, um, so I I know I've been telling you guys for a while that I've been trying to get my wife, and also editor, uh, Court, to play a game of Kill Team with me. And she's a very busy lady, so of course I've been patiently waiting until she had some time to do so. And last night, um, she had time, I had time, the stars were right, and we were able to get together for a game of Kill Team. And I was just I was very stoked about it, and I was wanting it to go well. And so I asked her what team she wanted to use, and she was like, well, I want to use the least amount of models possible. These were 200-point lists that I had already had and and, and had done up. And so she said, I want to use the one with the least number of models possible. So I gave her my Dark Angels list. So for you guys listening who play Warhammer 40K, this list consisted of a Terminator Sergeant who was in charge. Uh, You had an Intercessor Sergeant who was the comms guy, who had also had the uh, um, Stalker Bolt Rifle and the Auspex. A uh, gunner who had an assault rifle. He was the demolitions. And then a combat specialist with a thunder hammer and storm shield. And then two more Terminators with thunder hammer and storm shields for good measure. So that's six dudes. Three of them melee, all with uh, shields and big, 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 big hammers. And then three dudes who had, uh, who had guns and also the melee weapons going on too. All with the exception of the Intercessor Sergeant. They're all in Terminator armor. So they're all, you know, very difficult to kill. And so... I didn't want to, I like multitasker or, 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 or like, uh, what's the word? Um, micromanage. I didn't want to micromanage her game because it's her team, but I wanted to let her know one of the mechanics that I had built into this list. And so, the dude with the the, the Auspex, his intercessor sergeant, is kind of designed to stand right next to the Terminator Gunner because he feeds the Terminator Gunner the Auspex and the scanner, which gives him a plus one to hit and makes him ignore any penalties for shooting uh, at an obscured target. And so, he's got that assault cannon that's six shots. Um, so it's a really good combo. So I told her about that. I was like, look, you're going to want to keep these guys within three inches of each other so that they can benefit from this ability. Uh, beyond that, play your own game. But like this mechanic is very important. And and she listened for the entire game. Those two did not leave a three inch uh, space. And again, that mechanic combined with the Dark Angels mechanic, where if you don't move, you re-roll ones to hit when you're shooting. It made for a very uh, devastating combo. So when she set up, um... Again, I, I don't know if it's because she's been listening to the show while she's been editing it, or if it's because she just has a, a natural know-how and is just good at things when she does them. I'm honestly not sure. She's
0: just smart, man. You married up.
1: I know. I know I did. I'm fully aware of that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so she, she sets up and I could not have done it better myself. This is her very first game of Kill Team Thumbs and she sets up and I'm like, oh, that's, that's about what I would have done too. Cause she, she put her main group of, uh, those, those the stompy boys, the ones with the shields and the hammers all in a cluster right in front of my line of Death Guard. Uh, that was what I, what I was playing, by the way. I don't think I went into that. I was playing Death Guard. Uh, also a bunch of Terminator guys. And then she got her, the two shooters, uh, the, the sniper and the, the guy with the assault cannon kind of off on the left wing uh, where they were still protected, but they had a really big open field in front of them. So they could shoot at anybody, but they still had cover where they were at. And it would take a lot of effort for me to get over to them. Um, so they kind of had this kind of overwatch thing going on. And then her, her main bruisers were going to breach the, the group of ruins that I had set up my death garden. We were playing uh, breach their or break their will, by the way, anybody who's, uh, has the kill team annual 2019. Uh, it's one of the narrative missions for the Astartes in there. And, um, and the whole point of it is to, if, if you're as the Astartes player, you're trying to just kill the opponent. And your opponent is trying to survive, because as the Astartes player, if you kill more than your opponent has left, you win. And vice versa.
0: So if they got nine people, you want to kill five.
1: Correct. And if if you're defending, you want to have at least five dudes left on the board. Um, and so it was, it was a really good game. Like It came down, of course, to that, that crunch and punch, because I had a bunch of uh, Blightlord Terminators, and of course she's coming in with the Deathwing, and... Uh, the very last round, we went all the way to round six. Of course, it's a random length game, and we went to round six. And I had um, four—I had seven dudes on my team, Nurgle players. You'll appreciate that. And I was there's four dudes left on the field, and the last dude that I rolled my dice on uh, rolled to to flee uh, during the last part of these victory conditions, and she got her win. So it was it was an exceptional game. She played ex- very well. Used the list. As, as as the way it was supposed to be used. Like, she saw what they were for, and she was like, all right, melee dudes do melee, shooty dudes do shooty.
0: And it went really well. It was a good game. Well, that basic setup just kind of perfectly matches something. Uh, Warmaster Hakan, El Presidente of Belagarth, was talking about, to me and my squire just the other day, of he was giving her the advice of throw two different shots at both places. And, like, at two different places. And it might be a feint or it might not be. Mm-hmm. And the, kind of the same thing with, you know, having that shooting from afar and like, man, I really got to worry about that. But also there's these people coming here.
1: Well, it's, and like she, like I said, because she had that immediate um, melee press on me and the Death Guard are very slow, especially De- Blight Lord Terminators. um because she had that immediate press on me, I couldn't even dedicate any of my shots over to her shooters. They they remained unvarnished the entire game because my focus had to be on the Stompy boys coming in my front door, um, and I took most of them out. I managed to I managed to I think I got either two or all of her melee guys by the end of it. Um, but again, I just met my one of my dudes. He just couldn't he couldn't take the pressure. It happens. Yeah, it was, like I said, I know you're going to be editing this, babe. So again, great game. Uh, looking forward to playing with you again. And, and the nice thing was she seemed to enjoy it. She really, really seemed to enjoy it. So um, hopefully we we can play some more games in the future. <laughs> and then the last thing I got to talk about is the fact that um, this this flag that I've been talking about, this Imperium flag that I ordered from Latvia is finally in Chicago. So um, if you guys haven't seen it by now already, because that was the last piece, if you remember last piece before I wanted to post pictures of my, my war shed was that I wanted to get that flag on the wall. And so it is in Chicago and we'll be here soon. Nice. And then I've also got my Warhammer board coming. And so at that point I'll have like a proper uh, six by four foot Warhammer board with a good mat for it. I will hopefully have enough terrain done by then. And of course there's no other Warhammer players in the house. So I'll just be playing with myself unless my wife wants to join in.
0: Hint, hint. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, but you were playing a nice uh, a game that was based on kind of teamwork and cooperation in a different way recently, weren't you, Thumbs?
0: Yeah, I was introduced to, it's this weird little indie game called, oh uh, god, what is it, uh, Overcooked 2, I think it is. Okay. I just discovered it like two days ago, so I'm still remembering things. Um, And it's a, it's a very cutesy cartoony game, but it is set in a kitchen. Like, you are running, like, a professional-level kitchen, so you're having to bring out orders, and you have people washing dishes and cutting this up and boiling that and plating it and, you know, all the stuff that you do in a kitchen. Sure. And fair warning, there are definitely people that do not like this game, and that is 100% legitimate. It is a stressful freaking game.
1: Uh, Working in a kitchen (laughs) is stressful, so I can imagine.
0: Uh, And it's interesting, because I hate working in the kitchen at work, but I really am enjoying this game, and part of it is, uh, it is a excellent team building, especially if you have, because you can do one to four players, and I can't imagine doing this with one player. Like, I just, I don't think it's possible.
1: That sounds like madness.
0: But, like, two or three is pretty nice, because there's enough people to do stuff, but you're not, like, super crowded. When you get up to four, you have four people running around this kitchen, all trying to by later points each one of you trying to do like four or five things at once and so you're just like running into each other and making mistakes and so you have to have like crisp clear communication you have to have plans like almost every time we did a level for the first time it went terribly every time and we went okay let's do that again and like we paused it and went these are the things that needs to happen cc you're going to, you know, chop up cucumbers and lay out the sushi nori. You are going to like take the rice and do this and I'm going to run around like doing the dishes and delivering the dun plates. So it was a good way of practicing communication and task management.
1: For sure. And and like you said, like if if you're not uh if you're not able to get out and fight or do much else at the moment, it sounds like a really good teamwork building exercise, too. Is this a game that you have to be in the same room to play with people, or can you play it like uh, with friends across the country?
0: Um, we have only done it in the same room, so I'm not sure past that. Okay, okay. Uh, I am going to pick it up for my Switch, but it's on it's on Benoit's Switch, so I haven't been able to like root around in the details of it yet.
1: Uh, yeah, because that sounds interesting. I mean, like you said, it's not, it's not like a strictly a war game, but as we've mentioned before, an army marches on its stomach, so
0: running an efficient kitchen
1: is just as important as running an efficient siege.
0: Well, and despite it being stressful as all get out, as I said, you know, like any kind of like leadership communication, task management thing is, um, it is also very cute with like kind of peppy, soothing music playing the whole time, so it's... It's a weird dichotomy of like, oh, my God, stressful, but oh, look at the crocodile.
1: And unlike working in a in a real kitchen, you can you can turn it off whenever you want.
0: Yeah, I'm just doing this from the comfort of my couch, as opposed to, oh, God, this is paying my rent. Correct.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) much like playing at war, it sounds like playing kitchen is probably a lot more fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then but before we get into this, you were doing some other reading, too, weren't you? You were talking about Xenophon recently.
0: Yeah, I've mentioned him on the show before. Xenophon is a Greek general from uh, probably around 400 BC. He was uh, within a century of like the Greco-Persian Wars, the Hot Gates, the 300, and before Alexander the Great. So Greek and Persia are all dealing with each other. And the Persians go into a civil war determining who's going to be the new king. The Greeks... The uh, led by Xenophon join one side, and then their their side is winning, but then the person they're fighting for, Cyrus, dies, mm. and they're like, "Oh, oh, okay. Well, we don't have enough people to conquer the country, and we don't have issue with you anymore because no one's paying for us anymore. So I guess we could just go." And the Persians are like, "Do we want to let you?" Oh, you did just try and kill our king. And they're like, well, the other option is you can try and stop us. Like, we're going to go. How violent it is is up to you. At least this is how the Greeks have now portrayed it. Sure, sure. And Xenophon tells the story of him and ten thousand hopolites ditching everything other than like their weapons and their barest necessity supplies. They're like, oh, we didn't even bring our tents. Tents are heavy. And going across the Persian Empire, getting in scraps the whole way. It is (laughs) one of the greatest adventure stories of all time, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Uh, It's, I mean, it's interesting because it's like Herodotus. And I mean, I've talked so much about why I love ancient history. It's why I'm so excited for our next book. It is one of the few times that we have this era of history in in detail when we're hearing the voices of those people usually true. we have like this cuneiform tablet says that this happened and the archaeological evidence says this is probably true right or like look we found this sword that's what it looks like this is xenophon being like well we said that they had to get rid of all the women and children and like the people that were following us the camp followers but some of them found their boyfriends or girlfriends really attractive and smuggled them along and we had to get mad at it Or, like, there's a scene where the Persians are like, if you try to go forward or backwards, you are declaring war. If you stay where you are, there's, like, some kind of peace. And the Greeks are like, yes, we agree with you. If we leave or continue fighting, we will be going to war. And if we stay here, and they're like, okay, so which one are you going to do? And they're like, it would be really bad if we just left, because that would be war. But also, we can't really stay here. But it would be bad if we went for, and like the poor Persian general or satrap or whoever is general, just being like, just tell me what you're wanting to do. Make a decision. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, It's fun. It's, it personalizes an era of history that is so hard to get personalized. I don't think I've read that one. I'm going to have to pick that one up
1: myself. And and, uh, potentially we might be able to talk about it on the show too, because that sounds like something right up our alley.
0: Well, and that's why I was looking at it, and I was looking specifically, he, the same guy did a bi- biography of Cyrus the Great, the guy who founded the Achaemenid Persians, who the Greeks were in love with. The Greeks thought Cyrus was the Beesnes. So he wrote a whole treatise about Cyrus as, like, an example of how to be a good general and leader. So I was like, wow, that's straight up our alley. That's perfect for us. But I found the weird, like... Uh, Economic how to you know run business like a war treaty version of the mm. book, and uh not what I was going for. I wanted how to run a war like a
1: war book for sure for sure, like we had talked about before, there seems to be a lot of these retellings around of like using old military books as an approach to like business tactics and this isn't a political show so we're not going to get into that too much but uh i I like old books being talked about within the context of what they were useful for then personally but Mm -hmm. that's my own my own thing but yeah i I think that uh that introduces us pretty well for the for the day um do you want to get into the actual meat and potatoes here thumbs let's talk about some siege tactics all right and we're going to start talking about these siege tactics with how to surprise fixed location
0: so as we've talked about as i said just right like seconds ago for you guys uh this is a siege chapter there's always a siege chapter because sieges were hugely important in war in war gaming they don't come up as much Not nearly
1: as much as I would like. I feel like there's some really fun war games to be played, especially in physical war gaming with a proper siege. And like, I know if you're doing like a a themed thing, there are, there are ways in 40k to do a siege. Like, uh, I think it's cities, cities on fire or something like that, where it is like a, you, like one player sets up for a siege and the other uh, player is trying to like break their city or break their planetary defenses. So in very specific scenarios you can do it but for the most part when you're doing like tournament play or casual play at your at your local shop or at your local field you're not going to see that many sieges unfortunately Mm-mm. which makes me sad because i love siege science <laughs> like there's, there's 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 where math and and war meet perfectly is in siege tactics and this chapter like i had i had like half of my notes i had to cut out of this chapter because i was going through it or through this section. Um. I was going through it being like, oh, that's really good, that's really good, that's really good. And I was taking these notes for myself. And I was going back through them, trying to refine them, saying, well, unfortunately, this whole section doesn't really matter for physical or intellectual wargaming. And this section doesn't matter. And so, again, like half my notes had to get gutted because they were not applicable to what we're talking about. So that's a long way of saying um, if you're really into that sort of thing, if you do a, a reenactment or a, another wargame that is actually more focused on sieges, I would highly recommend you check out these. Um, these pages, these sections in, in Frederick the Great's book, because he's, he's got really good, really, of course he's meticulous. He's got this gorgeous mind and, um, he applies it to this, the science of siege. So that's, that's what I'm going to say about that. Um, so what we've taken here is the useful stuff. Again, we studied, uh, for this section, three different ideas, the surprise and attack or the surprise and defense of like a city of a, uh, like a trench works and of a camp. And so we kind of distilled all of those ideas into, of course, this section, Surprise of a Fixed Location, and then the next one, Prevention and Security. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when you're starting off with a surprise of a fixed location, and within this wargaming, that can be, like we say, a proper siege, or it can just be an objective that you have to hold. It could be that you are the, the, the group that's tasked with defending the flag during a game of Capture the Flag. There's a lot of different reasons that you might, need to hold or surprise a fixed location. So if you're going to surprise a fixed
0: location. Which is kind of always what you want to do.
1: Right, right. I mean, yeah, if if you get to the choice of these, you want to be the one doing the surprising. So um, if if, uh, you have that choice, gather as much intel as possible beforehand uh this includes numbers of the troops uh the layout of the encampment the dimensions of the encampment uh the dispositions of the troops what they're wearing what they're wielding how long they've been marching like any any information is useful when you're going to assault a fortified or an entrenched position and again this intel can be gathered in a lot of ways uh if you're playing 40k it can be or or bell a lot of times it can just be gathered at looking across the field most times you you know the numbers
0: yeah, oh man, they have archers.
1: Yeah, they've got archers. Oh, they've got a bunch of shields or a bunch of spears. We can see that this unit or that unit is over there. Um, well, you know, uh, or when when Court was looking at me during this kill team game, she was like, okay, I can see that these seven dudes are all holed up in this this work of ruins. I just need to keep them pinned down in these ruins, and my job is a lot easier. Um, so yeah. that, that intel it can really help you when you're when you're starting off. Um, so when you do know. Where, where the dispositions are, where they're strong, where they're weak, you want to be feigning attacks toward where they have the strong positions. Obviously your efforts, your real efforts are going to be focused at where they are weak, where you're going to be able to get in quickly, but you don't want them to be able to shift their strength from where it is to where you're going because it doesn't do you much good to attack a weak section if suddenly they just re-fortify it, right?
0: Yep. The simplest version of this that I can think of is think of it as like a one-on-one and one person gets legged. So they're turtled up sword and board. You know, that thing you have to fight. It's never... Fighting a leg sword and border is so hard because they can hide up so well. Right. Uh, so you want to... More often than not, I am trying to get them to shift their shields just enough or shift their leg a little too far or like uh faking them to break that turtle. Just think of right. it like that, but you know, on the large scale.
1: Right. Right. And so it, the idea is again to get them to misplace their strength so that you can get in quickly because speed is everything here. And so when you're when we're talking about where this weak point is going to exist, obviously you're looking for a place that may not have as many walls, may not have as many towers nearby, but in terms of like troops, you're looking for the place that doesn't have as much support like the reserves behind it they're going to be able to reinforce, or an area that is entirely too spread out. Right? These are the, the, the two big ones that you're going to be looking for. Because like, again, you like you want to get a good position and and getting a surprise of a fixed location is 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 all again about speed and about maintaining that surprise. So um you want to go someplace where they're not going to be able to react to you as quickly as you would like. Um, and again, this is easily done. You can look across the field and if you've been playing Belagarth or Dagger Hero or Amp for a while, you'll know a lot of your fellow players. And you might know where their strong side is stacking up. A lot of times strong players will tend to group together if they don't know what they're doing. It's just a subconscious thing. Um, And so there usually ends up being a very weak point in the line. And if you know who's on the other side, you can know this a lot easier. Uh, Same thing with understanding your opponent's codexes in something like 40k. If you know the other armies pretty well in whatever game you're playing, you're going to be able to ascertain where that weak point is more is the idea.
0: We talk almost every episode about how you and I like to find that weak point in our own army to reinforce it. But that also means that it's given us a bunch of time to practice finding that weak point in someone else's.
1: Very true. Very true. And so you you can never practice this enough. This goes into your coup d'ail, that whole, that whole idea. Um, This, this intuitive approach to war. Um, But before you have that coup d'ail, The idea is again, to look for these, one of these two things, not enough support or too spread out. And then your different uh, unit types, your different troop types have different roles, your infantry, your slow moving troops who are heavily armored or have shields and that sort of thing that you you want to use them to advance and then hold the ground again, uh, moving up, securing, and then moving up again in kind of a supporting system. The cav at this point though, you want to be leaving gaps so they can freely maneuver through the army and be where they need to be. To, to either support an action or to push off counterflankers or whatever the case may be. Yeah, the, so the CAV is is very reactionary in this case. You don't want to put them too far ahead of the army because then they can't be supported and they can't support. Uh, too often I think in, in in military history this is something that's occurred. People are like, hey Cav, just go off over there. And like Cav are great if they're used the right way.
0: Yeah, if you don't use Cav, they're just pointless. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> just Twice the food you need. Four times the food. So much food. So you want to use them correctly.
1: And even, even if we're talking uh, some, like, uh, um, um, metaphorically about you know, really fast-moving players in a physical war game, I, I think they typically eat more too. So you want to make sure you use them right. You want to make sure that those calories are going to a good place. So uh, the other, another good idea here is remember when we're talking about making sure that you're feigning to, to mix up where you're going to be going. You want to start this movement under another, another pretext. You know, it's, it's, it's a movement to be closer to another army. It's a move, movement to support somebody else. It's a movement to whatever other pretext you can come up with to tell your soldiers and to, and to, and to convey to the enemy that you're doing is best because otherwise they're going to see the movement toward a fixed location and say, oh, an attack is coming and they'll be prepared for it, which is what you yeah. don't want.
0: It's a uh, part of the reason why we give warnings about the, the people who shout the really loud instructions on a small field like Bellegarth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: like and mm-hmm. It, it there's definite advantages of it but also when you shout we're going right the whole field knows you're going right now
1: and if people are paying attention then then hopefully they'll react accordingly like i there's there's been times where i'm sitting there listening to somebody else hollering orders across the way and nobody watches to see what those people are doing it's like you, they just told people to run around our flank <laughs> why is nobody watching our rear like so so pay attention you want to pay attention Again, that movement under another pretext remember um and then frederick describes something here which i am gonna call the false cannons attack so the idea with a false cannons attack is you've got some sort of artillery and some sort of main moving body so with a for the sake of something like Bellagarth or another medieval reenactment sort of thing that would be your main infantry body and some archers uh for something like 40k of course your cannons can mean actual cannons like your, mm-hmm. your big guns So the idea with this is that you first commit your forces to one area. We're going to talk about two areas, zone A and zone B. Let's say that zone B is actually where you want to break in. You've noticed that they're fairly weak there for a number of reasons, and you want to direct your attack at zone B. So you start in zone A and you launch a a strongly felt but weakly committed to infantry assault at zone A. Again, it's just just to really draw attention. And you're shelling the area the whole time like you're making sure that your artillery are doing work there. The idea then is when you move your infantry over to take zone B, you then shell zone A, and that will make them concentrate there and be like, oh, they're coming back. You know, they did this last time, so they're coming back again. And so they will not be thinking about zone B because you've already hit zone A with a combination force. And so it's just a tricky way of making sure that your opponent is off foot
0: in some ways this is very different than from what Machiavelli recommended yeah for sure uh because Machiavelli was very if you remember hit strength with strength and uh Freddy here seems to be like make them think you're hitting strength with strength and then go hit somewhere else instead
1: well he's he's, he even Freddy recommends hitting strength with strength but he wants you to do so on your terms Right. And so like anytime you're attacking a fixed location, you are the weak one. You're the one who's having to get past this obstacle. And so what he's, uh, what I'm, what I think he's doing here is figuring out a way to even the field. You know, you're, you're, you're attacking this weak point so that you can get the position to attack the strong point. Right.
0: Yeah. Look at any time in history where roughly even forces and one side has a slight field advantage. That's done. Sure. You are now finished.
1: Yep, and especially if you don't play your cards right and you don't and you don't pay attention to the terrain. And so again, this is about mixing it up. If if your opponent has a fixed location that you need to take, that means a mistake was made along the way, cause like even Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, Fred, they all agree on this point. Don't siege if you don't have to. <laughs> it sucks. It takes years. Long arduous sucks on both sides, like it's just it's not good.
0: Well, and sieges always end dirty. There's There is never a siege that ends with like, oh, we gave up and it was okay. No, people starve to death. People. There's disease. mm. It's fascinating, but it is, it is where war gets the darkest. For sure.
1: And so that's why when, when Fred's talking about it, his whole thing here is about doing it with a surprise. You're doing it and you're trying to end it as quickly as possible. One of the things he talks about in these sections is if you can interrupt your opponent before they finish setting up. You know, if you see that your opponent is going to work building siege works, attack them before they're finished, you know, Shocking. It, right? Just
0: completely <laughs> surprising in
1: fights there. I, I didn't include that in here because again, we very rarely actually build siege works. So that's not going to be relevant. And I also thought that, that was pretty straightforward. So, uh, but we were just talking about cannons and, and if you're going to be using your cannons at all, it is good to remember that you need to protect your big guns uh, whether that is keeping them in cover, keeping shields nearby, uh, keeping them out of range of your opponent's big guns, uh, even taking like a a secondary position in order to like still get a good firing lane, but not be in direct line of fire of your opponent's guns. The whole point is your job is so much easier as an attacker. If you've got something to breach with, whether that's an Onager Dune Crawler, a Lehman Roost tank, um, a, a Volley of Arrows, a catapult, whatever the case may be.
0: Courts gunners from her kill team game.
1: Ex- yeah, the uh, the uh, intercessor sergeant and the Terminator gunner with the with the stalker bolt rifle and the assault cannon. Yeah, they would be the, the big guns in this example. And so she kept them well in away and out of harm's way so that they could continue shelling me and not be in any danger themselves. That's smart. That's really smart. That's, yeah. Um, and so you want to make sure you're doing the same because if your opponent can take out those big guns, suddenly your job becomes a lot harder. Breaching uh, those walls, controlling those troops, it's difficult. So protecting your big guns should be a paramount thing anytime you're trying to surprise a fixed location. You don't want to want to lose your ability to make war just because you've you've committed to this action, right? Exactly. But yeah, and and then so. I kind of want to open this up to just kind of see if we missed anything, but the the kind of the focus on this, the real focus when you're trying to surprise a fixed location is on maneuver and advance. You're not focusing on getting kills at first. It's not so important to kill the enemy at this stage in the siege or this stage of the game. The idea here is you want to be able to gain ground to get in a good position. Um, And so obviously, you know, you do, if you can kill, you know, or, or take really good positions or maybe take out a few of their big guns in the process go for it, but also recognize that if you slow down and try to shoot, or slow down and try to fight the enemy as you're going, it's going to take the surprise out of this completely.
0: Yeah, it reveals to the enemy where you are, it gives the enemy more time to prepare against you, and every time you have to stop to fight a little thing, you risk losing more of your troops, and when you are trying to siege someone, you need troops. There is... There is no like slim version of doing a siege for the most part.
1: Correct. I mean, the more, the more bodies you can throw at a siege, the more likely it is to succeed. Um, because again, I mean, even Machiavelli, if I, or Sun Tzu, if I remember right, he says you want to have at least three times the troops to start with uh, because even in scaling the walls, you'll lose half of them. Just scaling oh, the yeah. walls, just getting into the city,
0: you'll, you'll lose most of them. I was reading about a siege of the Anabaptists Revolt in Germany in like the 1500s, and this professional army had trouble getting into a city because all the ladies were hanging out at the walls and pouring stuff off of it and stuff. Like, you don't even need great troops if you have walls to hide behind,
1: yeah. And that's exactly the point. And if, and if you've got training, like if you've got somebody sitting there being like, All right, we're gonna get a little fireman chain going right here, we're gonna pass these buckets down, you're gonna pour them. And, and that it becomes this, uh, it's, it's something that an individual untrained soldier can't screw up. But again, there's a lot of those kind of tasks when it comes to defending against a siege. And and yeah, so, uh, so again, if you're, if you're trying to get the surprise, if you're trying to get in there and do something, you want to make sure that you can do so as quickly as possible. That's what it comes down to maneuver in advance, not focusing on kills necessarily, but getting a good position and getting your opponent out of position. Should be your your focus, because if you can do that, actually killing your opponent is going to be far easier uh than just battering your face against a fortified position absolutely now i, I like uh, i I know that we've talked about this before that there is a difference in in Bellegarth, which is a the physical wargaming that both thumbs and I do, in terms of how it is played in the west and how it is played in the east. Uh, in that here in the West, we rarely see walls. Like occasionally, for for maybe one or two battles, uh, battle for the ring, or f- I think there's a there's an event in Utah perhaps that that does um, some
0: some fortifications from time to time. Chaos Wars the last couple of years, mostly since you've been able to had to stop going. To be honest with you, uh, he the site doesn't agree with him. They have started doing very small, but it's like you know two walls that are a few feet long total like it, it is a very small fortification
1: so basically at chaos wars we're starting to get to the development of hadrian's wall um at its at its wimpiest yeah basically that's accurate <laughs> okay um so sort of i will talk about this a little bit chaos wars is is one of my absolute favorite events it breaks my heart that i haven't been able to go in several years but there is a very good reason for this and it's for whatever reason whether it's the the chemicals that the the farmers around this lake use to to treat their cows, or or the algae in the lake, or whatever it is, the mosquitoes in this area give me one of the worst allergic reactions I've ever had. It's like short of anaphylaxis. Like it's like I have like baseball sized welts developing on my body and like i was getting there was a harshness of breathing and dizziness that was coming with this like i was advised by nurses and doctors on site to get a hotel room and just get out of it like
0: (laughs) sorry man i was not giving you crap for not going to chaos wars no i know i know i just the listeners
1: may not know and they they've probably heard me talk about this event lovingly enough that they're i don't want them to sit there and go well why why isn't he going to his favorite event it's it's because the air makes me itch uncontrollably so um i will be going to chaos wars again once once the event site is moved which you know it'll happen eventually
0: and every few, five years or so it seems to happen
1: yeah and that's just and that's just natural um so so again here on here on the west like we've described we get a hadrian's wall occasionally so there's not that much to overcome but when i was in any of the events in dur de uh, whether you're going to beltane or to equinox both of them, they have like a fully constructed castle that they bring in, in like a moving van and they can put up on the field and it's got, you know, uh, readouts and it's got, uh, different entrances and stuff to it. It's, it's a really cool thing that they have and they can just, you know, bzz, 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 like drill it together each time. Cause it's, it's segmented. <laughs> um, so that's really cool. And then you know, if you go have a chance to go to East wind, which is in South Carolina, They have fixed fortifications. The guy who owns this site does a lot of different things there. I think he does a lot of different reenactment groups. He does... That's an
0: SCA site too.
1: Does an SCA. Yep, yep, yep. And what you're able to do there is actually have... Because he owns it and he loves this, what we do here, he's got actual fortifications there. So if you have a a chance, you have the pleasure to stop by Eastwind for any of their events, um, you can actually fight in like solid wood fortifications that you can like stand on top of and fight inside. Like... And stay inside. Like there's a whole there's a whole village there, and I, I mean I'm I'm going off on this, but the point to be said the the sport is a lot older in the east, and so I think that they have a lot more fortifications for that reason.
0: Alternate option, as much as you should go to Eastwind, is you should give Malark and I a bunch of money so we can make the site that we've been dreaming about since we were fifteen years old.
1: I mean that's also true. Like I, I tell you this right now, <laughs> if I were to win an obscene amount of money, or even just a you know a reasonable amount of money. Um, I, we have a dream to like invest in some property to build it up into, into, uh, basically a war gaming paradise, a place that, that people can go <laughs> and have a bunch of different scenarios. I would want to have a big hall there with a bunch of, uh, war boards on it and that sort of thing. Like, uh, just a, just a big old war nerds paradise.
0: Welcome to the wargaming compound. Uh, stay well.
1: Check your actual weapons at the door, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, I think that's, that's, that's basically what the, what the, they need to know about surprising a fixed location. What do you think Thumbs? That's, I think we're good. Well, on the flip side of that, because as Frederick says, even the finest medallions have a reverse side. Um, you might find yourself having to prevent the surprise of a fixed location and maintain its security. And so in our next section, we're going to discuss just that. So it should go without saying that within the context of Frederick's theories, be- becoming stationary and having to defend from a stationary position is the last thing that he would recommend. In fact, th- at the beginning of these sections, he says, do not at- assume a stationary defensive position unless it is absolutely necessary. And the, and the things he's talking about being absolutely necessary are if you've just lost a battle and you need to regroup so that it's not a route, or if you're outnumbered by three to one, or or a similar situation where maneuver in the field is just not gonna work. In those situations, a stationary, a temporary stationary defense is allowed
0: for. But it's like only them. Freddy yeah. is so, so like we should be moving always.
1: Yeah, he doesn't care for it. Remember, Prussia is this tiny, tiny little country surrounded by these big fish that wanna eat it. It's not gonna survive by sitting still. And if you're using these theories, you won't either. But if you are forced to, if one of these these circumstances, or if the the game scenario, that because again, I I understand that if you're walking out on the field and they say, all right, we're going to do a castle battle, and your <laughs> your job is to defend the castle, you don't really get a choice in that.
0: You don't be like, no,
1: <laughs> I don't wanna.
0: No, Freddie said, don't do it.
1: He said, don't. So in this, so let's say, for whatever reason, you have to. Now we come to the idea of prevention and security, because you have to remember that from the previous section, everybody's going to be trying to surprise you. Everybody who is against you is going to be trying to get up in that. So you need to be making sure that you're defending properly. How do you do that? Well, again, even though Freddy doesn't care for it, he is meticulous in his descriptions. And in the very first idea here, the science of defending reduces to gaining time. And you gain time through disputing ground with your opponent. So even if you have this stationary position to, to occupy, you should be sending sorties out, small sorties, frequently. Because this keeps your opponent from being able to form up on you.
0: In the last one, we were talking about how you don't want to have to stop and like worry about kills every time. In this case is exactly the opposite. You want to make them stop. Do every little moment.
1: Exactly. And, and the best way to do that is through a sortie. And so again, to kind of define what a sortie is, it is a small, uh, basically like a raiding party that goes out to hit a flank, destabilize the enemy, but you're not actually looking to necessarily like uh, turn them or to like invade them. The idea is to make them have to stop, reconsider what they're doing, defend their flank or defend their supply train and, and their momentum is then halted. Uh, Because it's all about the delay. You're trying to gain time. You're trying to prevent them from forming up and having all of their forces to bear on you at one time. And so sorties are the way to do that. You don't want to do large sorties,
0: right? For us personally, it's something like uh, Paksha, cannabis. Just let them wander off and like, oh god, we have to pay attention to you. Yep. A lot of times
1: in, in something smaller, like where you have a smaller field size with like with most Bellegarth or dagger here events, um, a sortie is going to be a single or, or maybe two people working together. You're not going to have like a large section going off to do these because they need to be able to move fast. They need to be able to get in and out quickly with minimal losses. Because again, every, every person you lose defending is, is a person you can't spare. You're not getting any more. You're, you are currently defending a siege. You're currently defending and it's a besieged position. What you got is what you got. Mm-hmm. So preserving that is, is of utmost importance you. You want to not lose too many men. So again, these sorties must be frequent and small in order to gain this time, disputing ground, um, uh, to be able to defend properly. When you're doing these sorties, you want to be using your cavalry charges to fix the contact. So if you've got somebody who's maneuvering around freely, the cavalry is supposed to move in quickly and fix them in a position, stop that freedom of motion. Your infantry are exclusively for holding ground. You're not you're not wasting time with them trying to advance and take positions. They are holding what you have and concentrating on building up the earthworks or the defenses or the the lines of sight or whatever in that particular position. but yeah, the CAV, you know, the CAV are supposed to move around and fix the contacts, keep things from moving around. When you're doing this, the science of it also comes down to contracting the front as much as possible. Whatever area your opponent is going to be striking from, you want to make that area as small as possible to make your numbers count for as much as possible. Think, think back to Thermopylae. Think back to the hot gates that were, that were the Persians had to come through to face those Greeks. Entire reason they picked that spot. Exactly. Exactly. It was the most defensible spot in Greece. Yep. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. Contracting that front to make sure. Now, obviously they did find a way behind, but that front originally was very small and they were able to use their, their superior training and the positioning, uh, to their advantage. But remember, because in the same example, your extreme forward positions and your extreme rear positions are going to be your, uh, most dangerous targets. They're going to be your most heavily sought after zones. You want to make sure you reinforce those, more than you do any other position. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's three big rules. There's three main rules that he lists here that are the most important for a proper defense in time of siege or a proper defense of a fixed location. The first one is to have strong support. This means having reserves ready to move up and support wherever you have a hole or wherever you see action. This means having redoubts, which is having an actual fortification in place that kind of oversees other ones. These redoubts, if you're able to position them yourself, like let's say you've got a a long game of paintball going on where you can make your own fortifications and the camps go to war with each other or something like that, you want your redoubts to be within range to support one another. I should be able to shoot somebody who is attacking your redout and vice versa. Because if they're too far apart, they're not going to be able to serve the purpose of of mutually supporting lines uh, along this already fortified line.
0: At that point, you've just split up your army, and they're just going to worry about one readout at a time, and that guy is done.
1: Or worse yet, hit a place where no readouts can hit. If your readouts are too, a space too far apart...
0: Yeah, if they're way too far apart, that is... Yeah,
1: then, then you're like, oh, there's a weak zone, I'm going there.
0: I just smiled. That doesn't work. Sorry.
1: We sit in here grinning at each other like fools. Ain't nobody can see it.
0: Given the look of like, yeah, right. Okay.
1: <laughs> we will eventually have a YouTube channel. We're still year one. We're, we're new to this. Both Thumbs and I are a bit of Luddites. I would say I'm, I'm a bit more of a Luddite than him. He understands these mediums a little bit better than I do, but uh, we're trying to come
0: into the 21st century. <laughs> but to go back to the, what is this, 18th century?
1: Yeah. Uh, or, or or something along those lines. Um, so again, uh, you want strong support. This comes in the forms of reserves, readouts. It also comes in making sure that you haven't overstretched your numbers. You want to make sure that even though it can be tempting to be like, okay, we're going to occupy this, this larger area to control it. If you are too spread out to properly support that large area, it doesn't matter. It's just going to be one large weak zone. So you wanna make sure that whatever space you occupy is not too large for the number of forces that you have. So this is the first rule of a proper siege, strong support. The second rule is that the flanks of your position need to be secured in strong locations. We're talking the edge of the world in, in, in terms of wargaming, whatever, whatever border is defined. Basically, you want your flank to be on one of those. Barring that, you want your flank to be located on something like a river or a cliff or a mountain or an impassable bog of some sort, a black hole would do nicely. Um, Basically a place that you don't have to worry about them going farther than that point. And if those can be located on forward salience, which is to say, let's say in the middle, you have your main position, that would mean that your, your flanks would be forward toward the enemy from where your center is. And this is a good idea because this keeps your enemy from being able to encircle you fully, right? You've got the encirclement. They have to come into a kill zone in order to engage you. And rather than having like a pinnacle or a point that they can just wrap around and bring their numbers to bear. So it's like creating a kill pocket. It's over at that point.
0: Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that's the other big thing. Even if you don't have the ability to necessarily secure like the flanks, you're not dealing with a huge army. Let's say you're just on five on five. We're talking about kill pockets here. Like, uh, uh, wow, that was the most intelligent noise I've ever made. hands
0: down.
1: It's like a drunk... Wookie, if I were to imagine it. Um, <laughs> God, you have been
0: watching a lot of Star Wars. I have. Um,
1: <laughs> so uh, I was at Aukfest, and they had a large hay bale fort set up to one side of the field. And our teams had kind of been trading back and forth. And most of the field was open, and that's where most of the fighting was taking place. But I noticed that this fort, whoever won in this fort, basically got the to backline the other team. And so I was like, this is the most important point of the line, because if this breaks, the rest of the line breaks first. But on the other side, I, the, the people who were on this flank with me were not very experienced fighters. Uh, most of them were fairly new. I had some unit mates there, unit mates who were far more experienced than me. But in terms of just per capita veterancy, we had fewer veterans. Whereas when I looked across the way, I saw dudes and and and, and gals who were used to working with one another who were veterans and who had been kicking butt this entire battle. So it was like, we are not going to beat them in a one-to-one fight. And so instead of going into the fortress, we actually just formed a kill pocket on our door side of the fortress and let them come through one or two at a time and just murdered them right there with all of our swords. Yeah, you did exactly what they had been doing. You don't have to be better. You just have to be smarter. Um, and so that's what this is talking about. That's the, that's the the shape that we're talking about when we're talking about these flanks being secured in strong locations on forward salience. It really gets you the bang for your buck. It can make you uh, prevail against people that you otherwise would not prevail against. And then so that's the second rule, the second big rule. The third and final big rule of, uh, of of prevention and security is to construct wide, deep ditches. Now, this isn't going to be very possible for most of us who aren't <laughs> allowed to, to change our fields or anything like that.
0: We will not be invited back to that false course if we do this.
1: But if you're capable of doing so, um, again, I included this in here because he he stressed this so much so many times that even if you're not capable of digging ditches, like, I mean, if you are do so. You need to. Um, they're important, wide, deep. Um, and you want to start reinforcing them every single day, every day that you can add to your fortifications, if you can do so. Um, because that's just one more thing that they have to cross. And we're talking things like palisades, which is like a wall of, of sharpened logs that have been stuck into the ground at a diagonal. So you've just got like a diagonal outward facing wall of, of wooden spikes Difficult to climb. Not fun.
0: They were so confusing when I was a kid because I'm like, no one's going to fall into that. But it does control where they can go.
1: Correct. And it's the same thing with a concealed pit they might fall into that so concealed pit with some some spikes in it or, or just even just a, a long drop of some sort um again we're not doing this against actual people but if you're in actual war this is something you want to do and then something called a chevron de frise. i'm sorry french listener please stay tuned <laughs> which in e- which in English is called a Frisian horse. And I know you've all seen them. When I I had to actually look this up because I was like, what is that? They're they're describing this like it's very normal. And I was like, I have no idea what this is. And when I looked up a picture of it, you do know what it is. Whenever you've been watching an old medieval uh, battle show or even something up to the Civil War, because I use these up fairly frequently up to the American Civil War. If you imagine the long log with a bunch of spikes just sticking out of it at weird angles and they just, they, they put it someplace. That's what we're talking about.
0: I didn't know that thing had a name. I've never even thought about the thing. It's just always there. Yep. It's a free horse and they're important. He, he talks
1: about them being very important because you can pick them up. You can move them to a new place. They're always going to stop cavalry because no horse in its right mind is going to run onto a spear that is not moving. That is just, just right there. The horse is like, no, what's wrong with you? But again, this is also just obstacles. Like if you're able to place any sort of obstacles between your opponent and your, your walls. Again, we're talking about delay. We're talking about uh, disrupting them from being able to bring all their forces to bear. Every little bit helps. Even just a spiked log in the middle of the field. That's, that's a place they can't walk. You know where they're not going to go at that point, right? So you can plan for it. So yeah, like Thumbs had said earlier, the whole focus of prevention and security is enemy force depletion, which is body count, racking up that body count and delay making sure that like delaying whatever action they're trying to do, delaying them from getting close to you, delaying whatever uh, fights might happen, just trying to buy time is important uh, in a siege, especially as the defender, where again, your numbers can't be replenished, not as easily, not, un- not unless there's somebody coming from outside to save you, which happens from time to time. I'm not saying that doesn't happen from time to time in history, but even when it does happen, like with, with Caesar, he just built another wall, so that you don't ca- you can't always count on that.
0: Right. Yeah, that is that is a last stand thing if someone's gonna come save us. But in the meantime, you need to make it so you are more expensive than you are worth.
1: So yeah, exactly, exactly. Make make them pay for every inch. Make them pay for every single inch or or meter that they want to take. So again, in terms of Bellegarth, uh, in terms of physical wargaming, you might see this in terms of actual fortifications. Some places build them out of actual wood. A lot of places build them out of hay bales. Much to my chagrin, because I get hay fever, which just that adds a whole other level to my battlefield realism. Because I'm out there and I'm I'm just like I got like the puffy eyes and and I, my my head is foggy and I'm like I'm just I'm kind of miserable. And so if I'm if I'm already holding a straw fortification. I'm going to be a little mean. (laughs) I'm just going to put it out there. You are paying for what my hay fever is doing to me right now. And I will volunteer for every sortie. They're like, who wants to go out and engage them in the field? Me. Me, please, me, me. me. Let's do this. (laughs) Give me some fresh air. So yeah, you can see these actual fortifications, but more often than not, um, and, and also in 40K, like there's some times where you're going to be able to build up an actual fortification or be able to occupy a building with all of your force and really build it up. But in most cases, you're going to be dealing with uh, an open or a, a semi covered field where you want to affix to the edge of the world. That's, that's the big point here. This secu- one of the flanks being secured in a, in a location that it's not going to be an issue is, is one of your big things to focus on here. Um, yeah. I, um, anything else on prevention and security there, Thumbs? No, that's
0: just make it expensive.
1: Just make it expensive. Yep. Delay and deplete. Delay and deplete—that is the the biggest thing about surviving a siege. Um, so we're about to talk about a fairly—it's—it's it's an older siege, but this is this is a subject that is also pretty sensitive. We don't shy away from sensitive topics on this show, but we will try to approach it with the dignity and respect that it deserves because we understand that this is a fairly prominent point uh, in an entire culture's history. So um, we will be uh, talking about today one of the, the most epic. Uh, sieges that I've ever read about, which is the Siege of Masada.
0: So as I've said, just ad nauseum at this point, Uh, I am a huge fan of ancient and history and antiquity in particular. So uh, Rome is almost relatively late for where my interest in like history lies for the most part. Uh, but somehow I have not read too much about Judea or the history of the Jewish people. Like they're around, they pop up in a lot of the stuff about the Achaemenid Persians. They kept popped up a lot when I was reading about like the collapse of the Bronze Age, but I've never had a chance to really sit down and like. What's Judea up to? I'd
1: highly recommend it. At some point, I we looked a lot at ancient Judea and Israelite um, culture and history when I was studying the Old Testament as a religious studies guy. Um, so it's it's actually a really cool period.
0: It's such an interesting point, but it can be a little intimidating uh, for someone like me who I don't I've, I'm not religious. I've never been raised religious. So I looking at the history through religious texts isn't a bad thing, but it's, uh, a little, sometimes a little harder of a read.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's like trying to learn about the, the activities of ancient, um, England through Beowulf, you know, you're going to, you're going to get uh, some of it, but it's, it's an artistic retelling of what's going on. And so, whereas like Maccabees, for instance, is a really, uh, useful text for determining uh, a series of wars that happened because it's very, very, um, almost to a fault. Uh, like when you're reading through the Bible and you get to Maccabees, it's almost out of place because while, while Kings does go into war and that sort of thing, um, like the description of Maccabees is just very vivid. Now, that being said, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the, 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 the wars of Saul and David and the, the events during, of course, Maccabees, um, can be correlated with archeological evidence. And so as a scholar, uh, you're not necessarily relying on the religious text for an exclusive uh, rendition of what's going on. You're also looking at the ar- archaeology that's been found in the area. And then also correlating texts, if there are any. Uh, the problem mm-hmm. with Josephus, who is the only guy who wrote on Masada, is that he's the only guy that wrote on Masada. And so we kind of have to take Josephus's word for it, at least as a source goes. Now, archaeology is revealing all sorts of really interesting things to us every single year, so, so that's awesome. The fact that we can use modern archaeology to kind of either corroborate or disprove some things in history, I, I think, is really neat, and is you know the, the whole point of it.
0: Well, and we actually know where Masada is, right? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we know Like, it's,
1: the ruins are still there. Like, you, like you can go look it up right now on Google Images and get some some really interesting looks at like because the layout, the whole layout of the fort, is still like there. That's amazing. Uh, it's that's that's the 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 building of the ancient world. They built it to last, baby.
0: <laughs> that, that's the hardest part about archaeology. I mean, there's even battles in the Civil War where we're like, well, we think it took place on this field, but we're not sure. And sometimes
1: you'll figure you'll figure things out where we're like over here or over there because they'll find like a, a bunch of bullets or a bunch of uh, mm-hmm. belts or or something else in an area to indicate that there was a large number of people there
0: and that was 200 years ago we're talking about something that took place almost 2000 years ago
1: right right yeah so uh, so again it's it's an interesting thing i i love archaeologists because they they honestly make being any sort of historian so much richer because they add to the story they make it possible um, cuz unfortunately josephus while he was a a main writer for a lot of this um the late judean period he, he's not very reliable. Like a lot of his numbers are, are off. For instance, when he describes Masada, he only describes it with having one palace, but we know that there were two. We found evidence of being two. And even Herod talks about building two there. And so some of the minutiae, you know, Josephus can kind of be questionable on, but we also know these events took place. So before we got into it, I just wanted to kind of bring up my beef with Josephus because in being a religious studies major, I have I have picked a fight
0: with you that dead guy. You have earned some beef, yeah. <laughs> I, I,
1: I pick a dead a fight with that dead guy quite a bit. So Masada, the the events we're about to talk about took place somewhere bef- between seventy two and seventy four of the current era. The the combatants at play were the Romans, under command of Lucius Flavius Silva, and the Sicari zealots, who were under command of Alazir Ben Yahir. I apologize, my, I've never studied Hebrew, uh, and, and my Arabic was only passable, so if I'm butchering Hebrew, I'm sorry, and I know.
0: To place this in like a context of the timeline for Rome, this is a little more than a century after Caesar has taken over the Republic and turned it into an empire. Right. Uh, so we're about a century into the Roman Empire era instead of Roman Republic era
1: a period of rapid expansion and a lot of military conquests.
0: Oh yeah, like even on Roman standards. Mhm.
1: And Judea was no different. Uh, Judea ended up becoming a protectorate, uh, a client state and then eventually um just a part of the Roman Empire uh, as as things as with things with Rome go. So uh, let's talk about the actual geography of the area, because I'm, I'm always going off about terrain and how important it is. And at Masada, it was probably the most important factor in terms of this battle, because Masada itself is located on a horst. Uh, that's not a horse, it's a horst. Um, for those of you who live in the American Southwest, um, anybody who's been to Africa, you know what a mesa looks like, which is a, uh, a basically a mountain that has just cliffs, just cliffs on the side and then a flat place on top, a plateau on top. And so that's what Masada was. Just sheer walls coming off of the valley floor and then a nice little plateau on the surface. Um, the dimensions of it, uh, these these cliffs we're talking about in some places were 300 feet and in other places were 1,300 feet. So th- that's, a, that's a long drop, even at its shortest point. Like 300 feet is quite a distance.
0: Yeah, you're probably dead no matter what. <laughs> like...
1: And then the top was pretty spacious itself, it was eighteen hundred feet by eight hundred and ninety feet, and so like the it was fairly rhomboid and and kind of together and so it was a very useful position and it had been used by by tribes for a long time. The previous dynasty had also built there, but Herod the Great was the one who really made Masada masada now uh we're going to talk a little bit more about who Herod was here in a second to kind of set the stage for the battle itself but in terms of this place he built two great palaces for himself on top of this mountain and then he fortified it so he built a, a wall around the outside of it and made sure that there were storehouses to be able to last for a long time his he was a very paranoid man Herod the great and uh he his intention was to have a basically a bug out spot Someplace that he could go if things got really heated, if there was a revolt, if there was somebody trying to kill him. A nice fortified location that uh, was unassailable. Because the only way to get up to the top of Masada was a path known as the Snake Path. And you couldn't even walk two people abreast on it. It was just a, a, a single file line going up.
0: Yeah, if you're going to talk a kill box, that is the kill box of kill boxes.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And this really is the place for... Any kind of siege. Uh, as we've talked about, one of the biggest problems of sieges is you run out of supplies, you run out of food, water. This place has cisterns that have been gathering up fresh water forever. So as long as it rains, you're going to be okay. And you can just save a ton of it.
1: And and there's several of them, too. Like There wasn't just one cistern. There were several minor cisterns and then a, and a series of major cisterns that made up for... I mean, there was, there was more than enough water.
0: And you said this is, what, 1,800 feet? wide yeah that is i mean 1800 a mile is 5280 so it's like a third of a mile
1: yeah it's 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 a big spot and they were able to fortify it quite nicely and like we were saying there were storehouses there was an area that if you needed to grow crops you could um and so a, a force up there could hold out indefinitely which was the whole plan um and so herod uh becomes the ruler of the Judean, uh, the provinces, the ruler of Jerusalem in 37 BCE. And he rules until four BCE. Um, and he's a vassal King of the Roman empire. Basically he went to the Roman Senate and said, if you instill me as a King in this area, um, I'll be loyal to you. They said, cool King of the Jews. And they sent him on his way, um, (laughs) with an army in order to do so. He kicked out the previous dynasty, the, the Hasmonean dynasty, which had been in power for a hundred and three years, um, and had fought tooth and nail to keep Israel, um or to keep Judea at this time to be an independent state. They they wanted to be free, and so they were constantly having to fight off against the like the Parthians and the Romans actually in several occasions, and the Hasmonians had been very resistant to, to being colonized by anybody.
0: The Romans were very good at this of if they didn't have the energy or if you weren't valuable enough to send in the legions. Um you know, become a client kingdom. You'll get these advantages and you'll totally not be in our empire, but you also totally will and pay us money. Yep. It was the intro state. And so
1: Herod, um, managed, he, he sealed his legitimacy by marrying the daughter of one of the Hasmonean kings. And so his wife was from this dynasty. But Herod is known for two things during his rule. He is known for being an absolute tyrant and he is known for his building works, like his the monuments that he built were actually quite impressive. For instance, he built up Masada. He also built up the temple. Um, there, there were like you could like look up the works of Herod. Like he was a monumental builder when it came to to what he was doing. And I think in some part, like again, he had he had visited the Romans. He had seen splendor, and I'm imagining that he was trying to be like, look, we're just as good. See, we've got we've got big stuff too. Didn't matter that he bankrupted the kingdom
0: to do it. Well, and remember, Judea has been around forever at this point. Judea traces back to the Bronze Age, you know, 1177 and older. But they were, and you know, they were powerful, but they were never the Achaemenid Persians powerful. They were never Assyria or Babylon powerful or Roman powerful.
1: And part of that in some ways, if you look at geography, they were in a bad spot because they were in the spot that if you wanted to get out of Africa via land, like if you were the Egyptians or the Nubians or, or the Phoenicians on foot, um, and you wanted to get out of Africa, you have to pass through the Levant and very near Mm -hmm. to the Jerusalem city state. If you are in, uh, the the further part of, of the Middle East, if you're in like the more Persia area or something like that, you have to come through that area in order to go West. If you are in, uh, Europe, you have to come through that area in order to go South and East. And so they they There were several small empires that were developed in that area, but again there were there was just so much traffic that it was just a bad spot It was a bad spot to try to occupy
0: It does really drive home how impressive it is though that i mean that this culture of Judea existed for thousands of years, let alone the fact that we're still their descendants are still like alive and thriving today.
1: Oh yeah. And I mean if you want to check out a stellar military campaign the Six Days War. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I mean like there there's still like the 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 sound tactics to in order to occupy bad ground like this that's kind of in the middle of a thoroughfare between everybody, you have to be good. I mean you have to be good at what you're doing in order to to survive there no doubt. Um and they were. They were for a long time and it was the persistence of Rome eventually and of course this in in interior uh, struggle brought about by the Herodian dynasty that eventually led to the uh, to this temporary uh, destruction of the the Jewish state. Uh, like we said, Israel now exists uh, again, but um, at this time it was it was it was Rome was awful. Rome was really awful about this. So again, to everyone, Herod was, to, I to talk a little bit about how Herod was a tyrant. So he killed anyone with a claim from the previous dynasty. This includes the daughter of a king a previous king, and all of her family. This included his own wife. This included children. This included, um, there was, there was a Hasmonean, um, a noble that was visiting from the Babylonian exiles. And the, the Babylonian warn, warned him. They were like, don't go. Herod is crazy. He will kill you. And so this guy comes and visits because Herod invited him and he kills him. So he was killing everybody who could Um, basically hold a uh, a claim to the throne or was a threat to him.
0: I gotta say, marrying someone to gain legitimacy and then immediately killing them is just a gutsy move.
1: That's cold. That's cold. (laughs) And then he also appoints a bunch of new high priests. He, he, He guts the priesthood and he says, I will only want people who are loyal to me from loyal families. And he puts in a bunch of new high priests. So all of this destabilizes the ruling class. And so he also destabilizes the lower class because these building projects are labor intensive. They require a lot of laborers to be present. And so the laborers under Herod end up becoming impoverished because of either low wages or unpaid wages. And so after his death, the poor economy led to riots and these riots were anticipatory of the great revolt. Um, and So again there's there is a lot of Judean history that we did not cover there. This is again the kind of the bare bones to understand where we're at um in, in terms of like conflict. Um we will go over more because I find this this period of history absolutely fascinating and again the the Judean peoples were gutsy for occupying such a a vulnerable area and managing to do it rather well. So in in 66 CE this is the beginning of the first Jewish Roman War. It would be an eight-year conflict known as the Great Revolt. So at the beginning of this section, we had told you about the Romans were participating, and then we talked about the Sicarii zealots. Um, I kind of want to define what these guys were at this point, because during the first century, zealot was not just a term to refer to anybody who seemed fanatical. Zealot was an actual political party in Judea that was opposed to Roman occupation. And the Sicarii were a, a violent splinter group of the zealots who also being opposed to occupation, were doing something about it in a very violent way. They were one of the earliest known cloak and dagger assassination groups. This term has become so commonplace for us, this cloak and dagger, but it actually means a real thing. It's this, this style of assassination of using the presence of a crowd to get close to your target knifing them, and then fading back into the crowd. This is one of the first times in history that we see this being done in an organized way, a large group of people being trained to fight in this way. It's actually really fascinating. And of course, their targets were um, were Roman officials, but the Sicarii were also known to go after Jewish officials who didn't agree with them.
0: Yeah, uh, and this is actually kind of a situation Rome loved the most when it came to its client kingdoms, because anytime there was any sort of rebellion in the client kingdoms that meant it was time to tamp down and you weren't so much a client kingdom anymore you were now just part of the empire
1: right right you were a protectorate at best and if uh, you were just part of the empire at, at worst um complete subsumation so yeah they they these sakari managed to seize masada when this all kicked off um uh, this this revolt after it kicked off consumed the entire province and the Sicarii were able to seize Masada at this time from the Roman garrison. So this would be the first of three wars. Uh, the last of these wars was the Bar Kokhba revolt in uh, 132 to 136, that would actually see the de, kind of the destruction of the, the Judean state for a very long period of time. Uh, during, uh, the, the, the cessation of this would be that uh, Judaism was outlawed. You could, not, you could not practice Judaism within the Roman empire there was a genocide. The, the, the Jews were nearly, or the Jewish people were nearly wiped out uh, during this particular time. Uh, it, it was bad. It was bad. So this, the, this tension was real. Again, it started, of course, when Rome moved into the area was intensified by Herod and the, the power vacuum that was left when Herod the Great died. There was a huge power vacuum and of course, all these unpaid bills. And so the economy just proceeded to get worse and worse and worse. Control because it proceeded to get worse and worse and worse. And to give you an idea of the guy leaning at the top Nero had been in charge for 12 years at this point
0: and Nero's kind of infamous as one of the most insane emperors
1: not just insane but also moderately incompetent at doing his job at managing the empire like yes he he did some really weird stuff and some some pretty bad stuff and and of course uh, there's a myth that he fiddled while rome burned but that's i that's more of a metaphor to the fact that he was distracted with other things while the empire was on fire
0: insane, violent, and dumb is about the worst thing you can have when your enemy is the most powerful, uh, army in the world.
1: Yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad combo. That's a, that's a rather rather lethal combo. And so, uh, this crisis escalates, uh, like we said, partially due to the poor economy, uh, after, after Harriet had bankrupted the state with all of his building projects, uh, partially due to anti-taxation protests, because again, people don't have money, and Rome is like, pay, and they're like, with what? Um, we ain't got money to pay with. And then of course there were the attacks on Roman citizens. Uh, again, we're talking a place where Romans are not welcome. And I imagine that a, a, uh, a tiff in the street might escalate rather quickly when you're talking about an occupier, um, get out of my land sort of situation. Right. And so the governor, uh, Gessius Florus does literally the worst thing he could do in this situation, in my opinion. Literally the worst thing. Because he takes this as a reason to plunder the second temple, uh basically saying this money is owed to uh to Caesar and
0: you need to pay up. So
1: I'm going to plunder your most holy site and take it. And then he
0: raids Jerusalem. That people tend to react calmly to that. I don't know why you think there's yeah, such well, a well I you know,
1: yeah. And, uh, and then he also starts arresting prominent religious figures and prominent political figures, many of whom are also Roman citizens. Like these guys, these guys are with the program. And he's like, nah, we're just going to arrest you anyways.
0: Again, super calm, rational move.
1: Well, these super calm, <laughs> rational moves. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm done. I'm done. Result in the large scale rebellion of the entire Judean province, uh, which quickly overwhelms the garrison there. Herod Agrippa II which is the current king, the current part of the Herodian dynasty, uh, its eighth member and also its last member. Um, And all the Roman officials get out. They flee because, uh, again, the garrison is quickly overwhelmed and the zealots and other political parties take over. Now, at this point, there is a lot of infighting between the different groups. Like we talked about, the Sicarii were not above knifing one of their own in order to prove a point. And so they were in pretty constant conflict with the zealots and other uh, political branches that were operating operating in the area
0: it's not a great way to make friends
1: it's not you don't want to knife people and then be like want to be pals that's not that's not how it works um of course you could ask zulu he might have different stories to tell um but and so uh, and and so because of this there's a lot of sikari who are leaving to go to masada they had seized it at the very beginning. And so, as Jerusalem becomes more violent, even just because between the, the various groups themselves, more and more Sakari are moving out and, and going to these fortified locations, including Masada. So, at this point, Vespasian and Titus, who students of history will recognize as future emperors, are given command of the area, to so take it back. And they began the systematic reconquering of the Judean territory now it takes like I said eight years for this to for this to happen and there's a lot of setbacks and there's a lot of actually really cool sieges um, that happened during this time a lot of very very detailed sieges that happened during this time Uh, which is nice because we got it from uh, several different sources um but eventually the Romans are, are taking it all back
0: Eight years is a long time, but it's also impressive considering how many sieges are being done during this. Because, as I said earlier, sieges can take years sometimes.
1: And are very difficult, not just on the defender, but also on the attacker.
0: It is exhausting. It takes forever. Uh, It is, and the, the Romans were so weirdly good at it. It's part of the reason why they were able to conquer as much as they were. There are sieges? Whatever.
1: Well, I mean, like we had talked about before, the Romans were, uh, basically their training was half military training, half engineering training. Everybody knew how to set up a camp. Everybody knew how to how to uh, basically follow orders. And the, the Romans were very practiced at this. It was something they were very good at.
0: Being in the Legion was like, well, let's walk in full military regalia, which includes heavy metal armor and a shield for 20 miles, and then do construction work for a few hours.
1: And they you know what we're doing tomorrow? The same the thing. same thing. Yep. Same day. thing. And that thing. was
0: the calm good days. <laughs> that was the yeah. relaxing
1: let's just travel days. That's not the let's go attack somebody at some point during this crazy adventure days. No. Yeah. The Romans were well trained, well, well equipped for what they were doing. But to their credit, the Zealots and the Sicari fought very well themselves. And again, during this campaign, there's a lot of battles I want to come back and cover because they're, they're very good and deserve episodes in their own right. <clears throat> but eventually more and more territory is claimed and Masada remains. And part of the reason that Masada was so late to be conquered was because it was in the extreme south of the Dead Sea. Whereas most of this other activity was taking place toward the north of the Dead Sea. And so they conquered that first and then they came after Masada. The other issue was Masada was extremely hard to to hit. The Romans had occupied it before the sicarii did so they were fully fully aware of its capabilities but again over 8 years a lot st- a lot of things happened vespasian's commander and then he's called away to rome titus becomes commander and is called away to rome and at this point uh silva as we talked about at the beginning is now commander uh and he comes prepared he comes with uh not just the roman legions uh one of them being i want to point out julius caesar's old legion the 10th legion was the caesar the the legion that caesar himself personally commanded uh julius caesar
0: Important legion in history,
1: and so they had a, a an, an, an illustrious name, an illustrious reputation to uphold. Were all veterans of of very very extreme conflicts, and so like we're talking, um, if if the Romans had marines, these might be them, and so they're coming. Of course, they've got slaves and they've got uh, other other captives and and prisoners that they're bringing with them to haul gear, to haul per, uh, material. But you have roughly just under ten thousand fighting people on this side, right? And they come to Masada. Now, a salty Masada, from any direction, is just a pyrrhic victory at best. Because again, you it, like you, you outnumber them at least ten to one, but they're they're in there, and they've got that they they got the extreme high ground. You've got this narrow path; it's the only way to approach, and uh, they've got the ability to hold out forever. They're well stocked. They've got dates. They've got figs. They've got olive oil. They've got soil for which to grow if they need to. They've got their cisterns. They are set
0: to go. Yeah, that fresh water is just a game changer. That is, water has ended so many sieges.
1: And this is actually one of those rare cases in history that the attackers were worse off when the siege began than the defenders, which is to say that like time was against the attackers here. They would run out of supplies first before uh, those in Masada did. And so in typical Roman fashion, they set up a circumvallation wall network around the outside of the promontory. And a lot of these works, again, you can actually look up pictures right now. The ruins are still there. You can still see um, some of the actual wall and then a lot of the the like bases for these fortifications they built. It's pretty cool. And uh, again, this was a very Roman idea because the idea was to trap your opponent in there. You didn't want them breaking out. You didn't want them being able to bring in supplies or personnel from the outside. And so a, a circumvallation um, is a good idea.
0: Well, and we should say... Part of Masada's plan here was hoping that people would flock to them. Again, another common siege thing. Oh, the people will come flock to us and save us, and it didn't work. There were it no never people. does. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, they ne- they never came uh, in this particular case, and so. Uh, but what's impressive is this this large wall network only takes a few days to put up. Again, in typical Roman fashion, they just uh, completely assemble what they need, and then they continue. And what Silva eventually decides on as the best way to assault this position is just to build a massive ramp to go up.
0: I love this. This is the most Bugs Bunny crap I have ever heard in my life for military strategy. The most Roman crap you've ever heard in your life, because (laughs) these guys would
1: just, they would engineer their way out of any problem. And so they start, they start building a ramp. And of course, a ramp of these proportions, anybody who's an engineering student or knows anything about engineering will know that like building a ramp of this size, you have to make it very wide and very long. Otherwise it'll just collapse on itself. And so they built it at like a 20 degree angle and it takes months, like two to three months to build this ramp. And the whole time they are sustaining uh, like light arms fire, like archery fire and javelins and sling bolts from, from Masada.
0: And they just don't care.
1: Well, And they're building forts as they go. So basically, they, they get to the end of a day, and they'll build a fort to, like, a little wall at the top of the ramp to guard them. The next people come up the next day, and, like, they, they advance the ramp and then build a fort a little bit further. And so in very methodical Roman fashion, they just scoot their way closer to the wall. Just imagine watching that. Yeah, I—like, I, <laughs> as as somebody who's occupying Masada, I'm looking down, and I'm like, oh, huh, building a ramp, huh? Like, this is week one, right? You're looking down, and you're like, yeah, all right, a ramp. Nice about halfway through you're like wait a second are they gonna are they gonna get here i think they might get here this might work and then at that point you're trying to just throw everything you have at them
0: well and again this is you said 20 20 percent 20 degree Uh, 20 degree grade yep sorry uh percent uh but 20 degree angle and it's got to go up 300 feet that is a long long ramp
1: And it's still there. Again, if you look at pictures, like go to Google Images and look up Masada, you can see where this ramp, like the the ruins of it, still exist. It's still there. Because, you know, Romans. Even if you're building a ramp for one-time use, it's still built to last. Romans.
0: 2,000 years later. One time.
1: But, uh, and so they get there and they bring a siege tower to the very top. Now, contrary to popular belief, because, again, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or anything like that, you'll maybe be of the mindset that a siege tower is basically a big bridge, it's the, the whole point of it is to get there and slam down and people can go up and over. But that's that wasn't the primary use of siege towers in history. It's a pretty
0: inefficient thing
1: anyways. It is. It is. You're just throwing people, you know, two at a time onto a heavily fortified position. That, that, I mean, it makes for a good movie, but it doesn't make for a good strategy. No, it's just Killbox right there. <laughs> but instead, a siege tower was used to be taller. The idea was to be taller than the walls you were assaulting so you could shoot down. At the defenders and potentially clear them for other breaches. Now they also built a battering ram onto this siege tower so it it went to work on that outer stone wall and actually brought it down. What did they find on the inside? Another wall made of earth and wood. Now an earthen wood wall gives a lot more than stone. So the battering ram was actually having a really hard time battering this wall down. And again, the Romans are on a timeline here. They need to get this done. They are running out of food. They are running out of other supplies. They are being shot at constantly. So they they need to wrap this up. So they Mm -hmm. start a fire. They start a fire on the earthworks, which the wind shifts and puts onto the siege tower.
0: (laughs) Again, this is the most Looney Tunes episode of all time.
1: So at this point, the, the, the Roman, the Roman command is like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to do here. Um, if this doesn't work, I'm not sure what we're going to do. And then the wind shifts again, shifting it back onto the earthworks, which then are a a breach is able to be created and the Romans are able to get through. Now, what happens afterwards is, is definitely something to be serious about because Josephus and archaeology, Recent archaeological finds disagree on what exactly happened after the Romans breached Masada, but what is known is that they were killed almost to a person. Um, the 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 the, the Sicarii in this fortification were massacred almost to a person. Now Josephus says that there was a ritual suicide that occurred, um, that there was a, a, a mass suicide where everybody killed themselves, and when the Romans broke through, uh, there was uh, everybody was just dead.
0: Not unheard of in sieges.
1: Now, it's not unheard of in sieges because, again, the Romans, the Romans were not kind. They did, they, if they did take prisoners, that was a life of slavery. And, and most people would rather live for, uh, die free than live a slave. So it is possible. It is possible that this happened. Uh, recent archaeological finds suggest that it, it may have been a massacre instead. But any way you look at it, not just the fighters, but also the women and the children were all killed. And this was, uh, this is, this is devastating. I mean, this, this is, this was the end of this particular conflict or one of the last things that happened during this, this particular conflict. And it was fairly sound. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about, one of the, the issues that we saw here, and again, that, the, that, that difficulty getting up there was also difficulty getting out. And so what you didn't see at Masada were sorties. Remember these, these small actions coming out and delaying, uh, whatever the, whatever was going on. You didn't see that at Masada. It wasn't reported at Masada. But you also have to remember that getting to and from
0: Masada was very difficult. Well, and also, I mean, when we say outnumbered, we mean outnumbered. Yeah, 10 to 1. Yeah, they had, I think it said 960 people versus 10,000 Roman troops against a legion.
1: And not all those 960 people were fighter. They're not all fighters. You know, some of them are, are old. Some of them are kids. Some of them are injured even. Like, even our fighters. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it was, it was a hard situation. It was a hard situation. And unfortunately, um, the Romans were able, or uh, unfortunately for the Sicarii, the Romans were able to overcome their defenses and overcome the natural, uh, defenses provided by the terrain and, and really, uh, kind of take the wind out of this particular revolt. Now, again, this did not take the tension out of the region, nor did it take the fight out of the Judeans, because it, uh, like we said, there were two more large conflicts that occurred before the Romans resorted to some truly barbaric by today's standard tactics, um, in order to, uh, to quell this, this, this rebellious region, these proud people who reviews, refused, refused to be put down. Um, anything else to say on Masada real quick thumbs again, I, I kind no. of the, I think that the takeaway here is even if you've got the perfect defense, it can also be the perfect trap. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately,
0: it really is. Sieges never end happily, so they always start as like, "This is really interesting." Oh my god, look at these like great tactics, and they're like, "Oh, now I'm sad."
1: Yeah, I don't like. I I, I like reading about the the come up to a siege, but I never like to read about the the end of a siege. um Yeah, so today we've gone over surprise and prevention, when at least when it comes of a fixed position. When you're trying to surprise a fixed location, you're trying to gather as much intel as possible first. Attacking where there's strong feigning attacks to put them in place and not let them shift. You're looking for areas that don't have support and that they're too spread out and you're using your infantry to hold ground and using your cavalrymen to move around. You're trying to use ruses like a false cannon attack, but remember to protect your guns and remember the focus is to maneuver and advance, not necessarily kill. Whereas the theory is the exact opposite on the other side. If you are trying to prevent... Uh, surprise and secure a fixed location, the science reduces to gaining time and the gaining time is done through disputing ground. You can do that through sorties and remember your three big rules, strong support, flank secured in strong locations and constructing wide wide deep ditches. Wide weep witches. Wide weep witches. Uh, The focus here being the enemy force depletion and the delay of, of the siege completion. And we saw how these factors played out during the, the campaign and the eventual siege at Masada. So that's our show for the week. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about uh, some more Frederick the Great. But if you're looking for more shows to listen to, we've got some excellent listening on uh, the Earworm Network.
0: Yeah, you can listen to me and my buddy Tyler talk about whatever nerd thing crosses our minds. Uh, The episode that comes out the week that this one is should be, I believe, your fave is problematic where we're discussing like how to deal with realizing that you might not like an author, but you do like something that they made. Uh, We also, you know, did an episode on Pokemon. So it's a whole range of fun, interesting, silly nerd stuff uh and we also have on the network tyler and another guy named danny's fried squirms which is a podcast about horror movies
1: right on and if you're looking for a little bit more art of war gaming in your life We've got, uh, historically themed memes dropping on our Instagram and Facebook page by that name. Uh, it's art of wargaming podcast on Instagram and then the art of wargaming on Facebook. Uh, we've got a website that you can access our episodes at and, and kind of find the other things as well. Uh, T a o wargaming.com. You can always email us. That's the other thing we would really love to hear from you for a player interact or yeah player interaction uh looking for information for the player profiles again i i've i've been having people turn me down for the player profiles saying that they don't feel like they're cool enough or important enough to be featured
0: that's absolutely not true
1: this is a nerd game y'all and again i'm not going to press anybody out of their comfort zone i don't want to i don't want to put anybody's face out there that doesn't want it out there but in the same token don't don't compare yourself in a nerd game to other people we're all here we're all cool we're all here to have a good time, and uh, yeah, I, I I don't think about it that way, and I, and uh, yeah yeah.
0: If you've been to three practices and have your first set of garb, I still think you should apply for your player profile.
1: Absolutely, we want to see the diversity of the community. We want to see the faces who are here, those who have been here a long time, and those who are who are, who are new. Like we're all important. We're all here, a part of the community. So, and again, we have been I've been getting mostly uh, Belagarth and and Dagger here players. Um, if you're a Warhammer player. Um, please, please do the same. We, we would love to feature you on there as well. But I think for this week, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.